听众朋友您好，我是于真，现在开始我们的晨间节目《早安台北》。Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Thinking Aloud about Film. I'm Jose. I'm Richard. Today, we're going to be talking about Good Morning Taipei. We did a whole series of podcasts on Taiwanese cinema, probably going back over, over a year now. We were looking at Ho Xiao Shan, and we looked at Edward Yang, and we also went back and looked at some other Taiwanese films. We kind of Ground to a halt, and I think the reason we ground to a halt was we started looking at Moton Fei's films yes. and did a couple of really, really good films. And then there was an absolutely terrible film, <laughs> Men Behind the Sun, which we both we both hated. Oh my God, we got attacked. Um, there were bots after us. Oh God, yeah, we got attacked by bots online, and it was just very, very, very bizarre. So we we sort of put Taiwanese cinema on hold for a while, but but we've we've always wanted to get back to it. And this is prompted by a series of films which has been made made available online on a, a site called Taiwan Plus, which is a I, th I think a Taiwanese government-backed culture site. So obviously this is all part of soft power and making their culture available worldwide. But it's a series called Golden Decades Cinematic Masters of the Golden Horse Awards. So Taiwanese award-winning films. There are currently six films available online with English subtitles, some in restored versions, although the, this particular one we're talking about wasn't, wasn't a restoration, uh, all available for free, I think until May, although it's not really clear whether this set of films is available until May or whether they'll be changing them. But anyway, we'll put a link in the blog. The film we looked at first, to link in with what we were talking about before, is Good Morning Taipei, which is written by Ho Xiao Shen, and directed by Lee Singh. We'd already looked at a lot of the films he directed. We looked at, including his early kind of musical comedies. Um, we looked at Growing Up, which was another early script he, that was directed by another director. This, I think, predates all of the films of his we've talked about. And it, it's kind of interesting because it's, in Taiwanese cinema, you've got this transition from the kind of old style, healthy realist school of Taiwanese cinema to the the new Taiwanese cinema, the kind of new wave of Taiwanese cinema. And here we've got a script written by Ho Xiao Shen, the kind of leading light of new Taiwan cinema, but directed by Lee Sing, who was a veteran director of healthy realist films. So it's a, a, a very interesting kind of transition point, I guess, in Taiwanese cinema. I saw a funny uh, description of these healthy realism films. They were saying, you know, they're akin to Soviet cinema of the 40s, i.e. man falls in love with tractor. <laughs> 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 and we must say that uh, Good Morning Taipei is not Man Falls in Love with Tractor. I found it such a hugely enjoyable film. Like, no one would mistake it for a masterpiece of the cinema or, you know, something that uncovers the secrets of the human heart or anything like that. It's a really, in many ways, it's a, a melodrama, a musical melodrama. 
which is, you know, kind of an odd combination, really. So not musical comedy, musical melodrama. Uh, but nonetheless, completely charming and hugely enjoyable. And even those moments of extreme melodrama that you get, like, you know, this film has orphans and orphans crying at graveyards and you know, <laughs> funerals. And, you know, it's kind of, it's got it all. <laughs> yeah. And it's got songs, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yes. There's weeping and singing. You know, the only, the only thing interesting that it's missing is dancing. You know, but it seems to have everything else. And it's yeah. just hugely, I found it hugely enjoyable. Absolutely, because I, I think yeah, my, the way I introduced it probably makes it sound like something which would only be of interest to a kind of someone with an academic interest in Taiwanese cinema. And I think it, it would be interesting to someone with that interest, but also it's, it, it is just really, really enjoyable. Mm. I think, um, I mean, basically the story is, revolves around this young man who's Kenny B the star of Hu Shen's first several films, yeah? And basically his relationship with his father. He's a student who's pretending to be going to veterinary school, but actually he wants to be a pop star, right? And he's keeping his secrets from his father. He's best friends with this guy who's an orphan, and he's in love with his best friend's girlfriend, who happens to be the host and producer of Good Morning Taipei. <laughs> uh, he's hiding from his father that really he's playing in cafes and, you know, doing advertisements for radio and trying to cut a record, right? And there's this very funny line, which I don't know why cracked me up, but, you know, someone says, can't you tell your father that you can be a student and a pop singer at the same time? <laughs> Uh, it's so, kind of weird because I, I saw I actually didn't watch the whole thing but I saw the start of a film yesterday two days ago which has exactly the same plot it's this British film called Live It Up uh, with an exclamation mark and uh, very, a very young David Hemmings plays a, a young guy who's who's working as a postman but he's he's secretly a pop star <laughs> and his parents don't want him to be and his, his mother used to be a singer which also is the case of this film and it's like, oh, obviously the Live It Up doesn't have orphans and um you know tragic death fatal accidents and everything but... <laughs> the film has this wonderful beginning and ending so the ending is a response to this beginning and the beginning is a voice coming over the radio you know the landscape of of taipei yeah then you know this garden this lovely green garden where uh you know the father is doing his exercises the other person, who it turns out is a servant, I thought he was an uncle, yeah, because they call him uncle, right? But it seems he's a servant. Is I think un uncle is just being used as a kind of, uh, 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 yeah, it's kind of you, you're just using that term to refer to an older man. So because yeah. the the the, D, the female disc jockey calls him uncle as well, and that's I think it's, yeah. it's just that. So uh, you know, he's a family retainer. There's there's more affection and endearment than is suggested by servant. The young man is, uh, is going off to school and he refuses breakfast and so on. But you have this idyllic kind of setting, green, lush, uh, and also a kind of a, a familial one, yeah, that, you know, they, they all clearly love each other and they're, you know, they're bantering, even at the same time as obviously it's grounds for deceit, yeah, that the young man is not going to school, right? <laughs> He's going to play his guitar, <laughs> which his father finds humiliating, the thought of his son busking, right? 
And the voiceover is about how a problem with Taiwanese society, so there's a little lesson, there's many lessons in the film, you know, but the first one is the undue pride that families take in the achievements of their children, right? And how, how that might be both damaging to the child, how about how that might be damaging to the child. And this is then obviously uh, partly repeated at the end, so you get the same lush garden, you know, the same exercises, the same people there, you know, but the change now is that they want to bring the women into the garden. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and the, this whole moral lesson thing, that, that seems to be, you know, the, uh, another hallmark of, as well as people falling in love with tractors, another hallmark of these healthy realist films, that it was all about, you know, moral improvement and learning something from these films and, and moral lessons. And there are lots of these during the film because it, it's all kind of about generational conflict, but all of the generational conflicts get resolved. I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a sequence at one of the cafes that Kenny B's playing in. He sees this sad couple and it turns out, you know, the, the, the girl's pregnant and she's scared to tell her parents and will she have an abortion and so on and so on. And then, you know, he says, why don't you talk to your parents? And then, of course, he meets them again. Oh, yeah, we, we're really happy now. We talk to our parents and they're <laughs> we're going to get married and I'm going to go off and do my military service. And it's, it's you know, just every, every, everything's fine if you talk to your parents. So you get this mashup of that, but mashed up with the kind of some of the preoccupations of Ho Shao Shan's later films and of the other new time in cinema, which I, I find interesting. Mm. I was reading uh, as a little bit of preparation for this, this letterbox review but I think Peter Lobazza, who said that he'd been to a screening, a 35 millimeter screening of this film, uh, introduced by some professor who'd written a book on Taiwanese cinema, who argued, you know, that this film had nothing to do with the new Taiwanese cinema that came later, uh, and that it, it shouldn't even be seen as a transition piece. But I would argue, wi without knowing very much about, you know, Taiwanese cinema, that it actually requires it to be thought of as a transitional piece, right? For, yeah, yeah. For many reasons, like you said, you know, the director was somebody who'd already, you know, directed over 50 films, if we're getting to this one, you know, the screenwriter would become a leading light of new Taiwanese cinema, you know, so that in itself should at least raise the question. But I, I think there are more things in the film. The film is about young people, about generational change, about, yeah, you yeah. know, the connection between the old generation and the new you already feel that Taiwanese society is not just in transition, but almost that, you know, it's on the other side of, the, of, a, of a transition into modernity. So the fishing boats, the, the way that Kenny B, you know, he's living with his friends practically in the city. Uh, he does take a rickety old bus, yeah, to, to get there. Uh, but then, you know, there are motorcycles, there are nightclubs, there are cafes that focus on, you know, kind of, the young people and the way that they think differently to the older people and how, you know, the old and the young have to kind of come together. You know, as, as you say, we, we don't you know, have that academic background in the new Taiwanese cinema, but it's very clear to me when you watch, if you watch this film and compare it particularly to what Ho Shao Shen did later, when you look at the first three films that Ho Shao Shen directed, so Cute Girl, Cheerful Wind, Green, Green, Green Grass of Home, I mean, Cute Girl is very much just a purely a kind of romantic com musical comedy. But by the time you get to Green and Grass of Home, it's very similar to Ho Shao Shen's later films about childhood in terms yes. of what it does. And when you look at this film, there are themes in there that you 
see return to again in Ho Shashan's later work. You've got that transition, and you talk about modernity, this kind of contrasting the modernity of the city, and then suddenly they go to the countryside and there's the, 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 the port town where there's the, the fishing boat accident. You get all, all those sequences in the in the flat with um, Kenny B and his friends in the flat really reminded me of, of the setup in Boys from Feng Kui. So I, th- I think you to to say, oh, this, this shouldn't be considered in terms of the new time in cinema. Yeah, okay, well, it's not a new time in cinema film, but I think you it's when you see these films and, and when you think about how these films interrelate, it's totally untrue to say Ho Xiao Shen made these three films as director and however many films he wrote and you just ignore those and his only real films were the ones that are canonically new time in his cinema and the same with all these other new time cinema guys because they were all and women they were mostly guys because they were all floating around in the Taiwanese film industry and they were all collaborating with these old school directors so the the kind of dividing line that's been imposed feels like more of a kind of marketing exercise than anything else really well it feels both artificial and anti-intellectual to say that this film in a way doesn't match ma- matter much because it's kind of still caught up in an old tradition means that you uh ignore the continuities between this film and his first three films so you know you see a progression in his work as a screenwriter you know and then as a director through these films cute girl uh, and uh, Green Green Grass of Home and so on, you know, they are kind of musicals, they're comedies, but, you know, they're romances, they have melodramatic aspects. They're not too far removed from, yeah, Good Morning Taipei. <laughs> I think there's a kind of a greater emotional honesty to who Shen directed films. And then, of course, to say that, you know, only the new Taiwanese cinema style matters, is to dismiss this whole first part of Hu Xiaoshan's career unnecessarily, you know, kind of because I think you you learn more and you know better by kind of taking it all on board organically. And actually, I think this is an important stepping stone to the work that he would, the first films that he would begin to direct. It's very charming. I mean, you know, I like the songs. They reappear everywhere. It's clear that part of what the film is selling is Kenny B as a recording star. Yeah, he is, I believe, the only one that gets to sing. Well, there's a, a roommate that uh, is a contestant in some opera contest. Yes, yeah. But, but you never hear him sing a full song. You just hear him trilling. He, he just practicing, <laughs> yeah, yeah. When did you think that that character, do you think he was supposed to be gay? Yes, like, I do. I mean, yeah, yeah. And I, and I think... and. It's an interesting representation because on the one hand, it feels homophobic. On the other hand, it does feel endearing, like he's treated with affection. He's the, mm. I mean, you know, they're making fun of him, but they're not being mean to him, I don't think. Yeah, yeah, because there's a bit where he, he's talking to Kenny B and he, he sort of puts his hand on Kenny B's wrist. And Kenny B doesn't refer to him. He just kind of gently picks the hand up and moves it away. So it's kind of, you know, it's, I think that's the clearest signal, but it's kind of, but it's kind of saying, well, I don't really have a problem with it. Yes. I'm just not interested. And yes. that, that was quite interesting. Yes, I thought that was interesting. And I think particularly for the period that he's clearly coded as gay. Yeah. Um, the more interesting juxtaposition, and I think the thing that we have to discuss again, you know, in a bit of a vacuum, except that the film brings it up, is um, 
the way that the film conceptualizes or conceives of social position, yeah, as partly being class-based, Kenny B is clearly from a well-to-do family, they've got a servant, he's going to university, he is um, contrasted to his best friend, who's an orphan, right, and there's a whole thing about what that means to have no father, no mother, you have to work, you don't have help, you have to get people to buy your insurance. Um, but there is also the thing in the film about the urban and the rural. Yeah, that the rural is also seen as a kind of a social disadvantage somehow. I thought, I thought that was interesting when they move, you know, they go into the rural area and of course they're all fishermen and people, you know, who are kind of very vulnerable to the vagaries of the ocean and life. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And therefore need insurance. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, definitely, definitely interesting. And I think the the orphan thing was very interesting as well because that's a theme that keeps coming up in in Hoshoshen's later films as well. Um, I, I I've lost track of which one was which, but there's one where there's a there's a family with several children. One is adopted because he yeah he was an orphan and was was taken in, and he's sort of always viewed as lower status than, than the other children. And it, it feels I think that when you look at the ages of the people involved in making these films, you know. These orphans would have been orphans as a result of, of the, 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 of the of the war, yeah. So it, it's not just a kind of at one level the children's home here. It's kind of you know here's some cute children in children's home, but also it's kind of a serious social issue. The fact that the that the friend is an orphan and has always has a big issue about it. There's that scene. It's a very the tone suddenly shifts right when one of the little orphans runs away from the home and is is tracked down by Kenny B's friend who takes him home and he's really, really brutal to him. He's kind of forcing him to kneel in front of him and he beats him. But the way, I mean, the, the way, it's actually one of those scenes where the way the actor's being treated is pretty brutal, where he's kind of ramming his you, knees you down. You think it's for real, don't you? It looks, it was certainly the, the way that's filmed, I can't see how it was totally faked. But then he's saying the reason he's doing that is that we we don't have parents and because of that, We've always got to be ten times better than everyone else. We've always got to work harder than everyone else. Because at the start of the film, you see that this guy's a bit of a hustler, in, in a, not in a sexual sense, in a kind of financial sense. You know, he's trying to sell calculators. He's doing this, that, and the other. And you realise actually, this is because he's got to work harder than everyone else, but also because he's sending money back to the children's home. I thought that was very interesting because one of the one of the lessons in the film is that if you work too hard, you lose your life. Yeah, so it's a it's a bit of a dialogue between uh, Kenny B and his father. Yeah, uh, and it's also a, a bit of a dialogue between Kenny B and his best friend. That the best friend is always kind of hustling. He feels he needs to. He's constantly working, 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 right? But of course, as a result, he loses the only thing he loves. Yeah, which is yeah the girl, uh, and also really his life. Yeah. So kind of working too hard is bad for you. You have to have a balance between kind of achieving fulfillment at work and creating a good life. And a good life, according to the film, is not about work. And surely this must be a shift in thinking in this period. In a wartime society or in a society that comes from wartime, a society of scarcity, surely, surely work would have been sacred in a way, you know, that it kind of need not be later on. Uh, and, and while I think of it, actually, I thought one of the things that the film is very interesting on and that we maybe don't get as much as, you know, what you were describing about, you know, war creates orphans. 
And actually, this sense of being orphaned is not as represented in Anglo-American cinema because neither the United States nor the UK were invaded. So, you know, you might lose your father in the war, right? But it would have been still quite rare to lose your father and your mother. Yeah, like, I mean, it's possible your mother could have been bombed in the UK, right? But it's quite rare, right? Whereas in countries in which the war is fought on the ground, so to speak, of course people get orphaned. People, I'm sure people are, are, are being orphaned in Gaza on a daily basis, right? Uh, at the moment. So, so that's kind of an interesting thing that the film draws on. It's not just that, you know, one of the leading characters is an orphan, that he's helping to guide an orphan, but also that saving the orphanage becomes a major theme in this yeah. film. When they, when they got to that point of the orphanage being under threat, I thought, okay, all right, obviously, you know, you've got, a, you've got an orphanage and the orphanage is under threat of closure. You've got a radio station and you've got a singer. There's gonna, they're going to put a concert on and raise all the money. But no, it doesn't go in that direction at all. It, it solves the problem in a much more interesting way, I think. Mm. <laughs> I think, uh, you know, these films that are melodramas are often so telling of the culture that they're in. So, for example, I'm very fascinated by Spanish musicals, musical melodramas of the 1950s that revolve around children, right? Because, you know, so often, like, a, a, a typical plot will be, you know, this blind boy with a beautiful voice who's got to win the national song contest on the radio to get the operation he desperately needs in Houston, Texas. <laughs> right? And really, what these films say is, you know, what kind of a culture is it that you can't get health care? You know, often also they, they can't go to school or they can't afford school. So, you know, even though they're, they're kind of utopian resolutions, these films, right, they often reveal the lacks in the culture in a very, very, very vivid way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, that there's no yeah. school, that there's no health care, that, you know, that kind of these children are starving, that kind of you, they need a miracle to get what they need. Yeah, that should be a basic right to everyone else. So um, now, and, and, you know, we can only speculate, right? But it did kind of bring to mind, what is this stuff about the orphans in this film? Yeah, because it is a major strand, right? So on the one hand, you have pop stardom, right? And on the other hand, you have all these children who are going to be left destitute if <laughs> no one does something, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. So, um, yeah. yeah. And, and the other thing is, you know, again, in terms of reflecting the society, it's all, all the stuff about military service, which isn't, it's, it's not foregrounded, but it's just there because obviously all of the, and this is similar in, I think, Boys from Funkway, they were all pre, they were all about to do their military service. So they were kind of having their last, kind of fun before they go off and do military service for a year. I think similar in growing up. But but in this one, they've all done their military service. So they're students, but they're a bit older because they've done they spent a year, two years in the army. Yeah. And and you see and it's not you know, it's mentioned that Kenny B's done his military service and then he's studying to be a vet be a vet. And you you've got the the you know, the orphan in the flat, his photo of him in in the forces up on the wall. So it's kind of that that's just all there in their background that and part of this is, is you know, sort of kind of student rebellion, but it's student rebellion of someone who has left home, spent two years in the army, then comes back home, and is still treated like like a kid yes. by by his dad. You know, yes, that, which is an, an interesting thing. It is an interesting thing because it's very different than 
British cinema of the 60s, that Carnaby Street type of cinema, really. Because I think they, am, am, am I right in thinking that they would be the first generation for which the uh, military service was not obligatory, right? Like in Britain, it stopped in what the mid fifties or something. It was nineteen sixty. Nineteen sixty. So really, uh, but I think I, th I think it was also getting um, more common for people to be able to avoid doing it in the, in yeah. the late fifties as well. Yeah. Yeah, but you, but so all those films of the late sixties about youth would have been youth who no longer had to do the military service. Yeah, and had but their no parents freedoms. did, and that's a big thing that you know the parents saying you should you know two years in the army would have sorted you out my lad you know yeah they, but that, and they knew that the parents knew that because they had done their two years in the army or, or possibly they actually fought in the war yeah 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 yeah. i think attitudes to the military service are also um indicative of the state of the nation right and i think the film is very interesting because it actually doesn't have those attitudes so it takes doing the army as a given but it actually doesn't represent a perspective on doing the military Yeah, service. but I think, you, you know, as you say, it's a state of the nation thing, but also, you know, in terms of where they are, in terms of geography, in terms of China and so on. It's a bit, I'm just thinking about that. So, uh, I saw Fallen Leaves recently, where it was set in Finland, and there's all these scenes where no one refers to it. There's just all these scenes where people are listening to the radio and there's the latest news report about the invasion of Ukraine. And it's like, yeah, you think where they are, they're, they're just... There. If, if Russia looks in the other direction, that's where they are. Sure. And so it, it, it just shows this to be this constant thing. And it, you know, in Taiwan, clearly, it still is just a constant fear and a constant part of life. So there would just be an assumption that, yeah, you know, I'm going to do my military service. But but also, as I say, the fact that you're, you know, you're a student, you're a disaffected youth, you're being treated this way. But actually, you've spent two years serving your country and you're still being treated like a rebellious teenager it's 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 wrong but it it's i think that's a theme that certainly in those films like boys from Funquay and 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 the the, the later hashashan films and, and the edward yang films you know it's there and it's it, it's up front and it's talked about here because this is kind of you know officially sanctioned government last gasps of healthy realism it's not talked about but it's just it's it's just there and it's and, it, and i'm not saying it's a it's not at all subversive the way it's handled it's just something that's that's just there. You're, you're, you're aware of it. Let's talk a little bit about why the film is so charming, because, you know, one of my surprises is that it really is, in some ways, bad, in quotations, cinema, right? Like, you know, you see the melodramatic structures are so creepy, and you can see it coming yeah, a and mile it's just, away. And these th things, random stuff just keeps happening. It's just sort of, you know, you think you're watching a film about one thing, and then suddenly... They throw a children's home that's about to close in, and, and then suddenly they throw in a tragic fishing boat accident, and so on and so on and so on. Uh, but it still works. <laughs> yeah, and someone conveniently dies so that you know someone else can get the girl. <laughs> I was, literally at that at, at that point in the film, I was thinking the only the the only way this plot can be resolved is if that guy dies. Oh, here he's on his motorbike. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, literally, as I thought. That. <laughs> yeah. So you know, those are the problems, right? But then why is it so charming? Because I really was charmed by it. To be fair, like some of the other Hu Xiaoshen films, particularly the later ones, I often find myself having to stop the film and kind of just think about it, you know, get a cup of tea, like almost like get your bearings for what comes next. Whereas this one, it was just like I was quite happy to sit without moving for two hours and just yeah, yeah, yeah. let it wash over me, right? And I think part of it is 
is Kenny B. Yeah. You know, I think he's a he's incredibly charismatic and likable and sweet and a pleasure to to watch and listen to really. Yeah. And I think part of it is the tone of the film which is like you know, comic but you know, generous, yeah, kind of inclusive understanding, right? It has a really lovely tone, yeah. It's just sheer enjoyment, really. As you say, it's not, you know, to manage expectations. This is not a, this is not great cinema, and and it's not a Ho Shoshan film. You know, it's not directed by Ho Shoshan, but it, it's, it's fun. It's enjoyable. It's kind of a pleasure watching how all this stuff unfolds, um, and it, and it's, it is absolutely fascinating in terms of where it sits in his career and where it sits in the development of Taiwanese cinema. I think. Mm. Well, we enjoyed it so much that we are now going to look at all these Golden Horse winners uh, that uh, have been made available uh, in uh, restored versions. Well, we should say they, this one, unfortunately, isn't a restored version, but it's perfectly watchable. Yes. Uh, and it does have nice subtitles. So. We'll put the link here in the, in the blog post. It's Golden Decades, Cinematic Masters, of the Golden Horse Awards. I think we'll we'll look at them now uh, chronologically. It would be nice to get a sense of progression and change as we're watching them. Uh, and I think the next one that we'll do is Storm Over the Yangtze River. So I hope uh, you'll join us for our next podcast. Uh, thank you very much for listening. We certainly highly recommend Good Morning Taipei, don't we, Richard? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So thank you very much for, for listening. I'm Jose. I'm Richard. Uh, bye-bye. Bye. 大地又显出了曙光